Hello, and welcome to Jeff Pasito Reads. I'm Jeff Pasito, and this is today's story. Prism, Chapter 6, Hejat. The Wheelchair. How humiliating. He tries telling his daughter that he once walked six miles on a sprained ankle, carrying a half-dead soldier over his shoulders through mucky, uneven terrain, but without his dentures, his words are mumbled, his toothless maw spewing forth virtually unintelligible drivel. Then again, he can't really complain. After all, he was going home. Wrapped in an oversized jacket, his legs lashed together in a buffalo-check flannel blanket, he sat in silent reflection. The chair wheeled out into the cool bite of late Canadian winter, where mild mornings could plummet to Arctic afternoons. His puffy eyelids spasmed at the gust of chilly wind that swirled up in the entranceway. Instantly tearing up, he blinks away his saltless tears as he pulls at the fur lining to the collar of his suede jacket. Trying to stretch it over his exposed neck, he pulls at it to no avail, unable to convince the dead animal to move from beneath his bony, seated frame. The forest green aerostar is dithered gray with a salt and slush sediment, the lower half of it disappearing into the pale gray of winter-worn asphalt. Natalie struggles with the chair's brakes, trying to snap them into place before helping her father get out of the chair. Babbling the entire time in an endless stream of drivel, Ernesto has no idea what his daughter is saying and strains to push himself off the chair before the locks are fully engaged, making Natalie's work all the more difficult. He is out of breath by the time he manages to wrestle himself to his feet, determination getting the better of him. He'd be damned if he was going to let his daughter treat him like an invalid, like a child. He was a man, a survivor, a veteran for God's sake, a veteran of life and war. Natalie tries to hide her disappointment in his arrogant stubbornness as she opens the van door, but it is clear she is frustrated with the unwavering, pig-headed nature of her father. Hello, Nonno. How are you? Ernesto's grandson's voice is barely audible to the old man's damaged and aged eardrums. Artillery-stricken and machinery-worn, he could barely hear anything below a loud call. He tries clambering into the van slower than he lunged out of the wheelchair, but realizes his mistake the moment Natalie's hand braces against his back. Ernesto rolls his eyes, and he begins puffing his sunken cheeks slightly as his daughter pushes against him, helping him into the passenger seat. Small plumes of white condensation evaporate from his old gray lips as he huffs. Once seated, and the door closed a little too forcefully by Natalie, Joseph tries again. Hello, Nonno. How are you? This time, his basic Italian is a little more defined, a little easier to understand, and a lot louder. After a long, drawn-out sigh, Ernesto's response is a simple turning over of his left hand, rotating it from back to palm, then to back again, signifying so-so with an added grunt for emphasis. The orange and mauve brick house ran low to the ground, squashed among the towering beiges and whites of newer homes that had sporadically grown about Ernesto's home over the decades he had lived there. Looking around as the van pulls in, Ernesto sees the stark contrasts of the buildings in a jarring frame-skip of vision 
as the poorly manufactured sport suspension of the van bounds over the lip of the driveway. It is early March and still his daughter stops him when his stiff fingers reach clumsily for the small plastichrome door handle. Wait, wait, Dad. Wait until we've opened the door to the house. Her Italian is choppy, a bastardized Canadianization of their broken dialect of Dante's tongue. Ernesto's eyes raise from his futile attempts at the handle and fall outside the window to one of the beige towers, the one they built last year. The Chinese. That's what he calls the family that lives there. They are actually a Korean couple with three children who share their home with their children's grandmother, but they will always and forever be the Chinese to him. Like the other nationalities that surround him, he thinks he means no harm in the naming conventions he employs, only simplifying matters for himself. He assumes they call him the Italian, and deep down inside, he believes they all know what each other is capable of based solely on outward appearances. By the time he is done thinking about these neighbors he knows only in passing, acquaintances on his journey through the last chapter of his life is complete, he has climbed the three steps to his porch and is being ushered over the threshold like a tightrope walker being guided out on their first step off the safety of the platform. Shuffling along on his old spindly stilts that cramped and seized with the tidal pulls of the moon, Ernesto rushes as best as he can for the familiarity of his couch as the twang of the screen door snapping shut behind him and his entourage fills the room. This new couch is stiffer than the old one he had used for the better part of a decade. This one is green. His last one was brown. The colors meant nothing to him. The symbolism of the earth tones mean nothing to the farmer-turned-soldier-turned-mason-turned-burden. They were simply the couches that were on sale. Dad, Dad, his daughter begins. Listen to me. She nearly has to shout as she leans into him to pierce the silent echo that hollows his hearing. In spite of years of pleading, he refused to wear a hearing aid. The sounds of the world, silent for so long, assaulted his senses and made his life unbearable. You're not allowed to lie down anymore, she continues. Remember what the doctor said? You have to sit up in this chair. She doesn't point, but twists her entire torso towards the upright blue vinyl chair that sits adjacent to the doorway to his bedroom, signaling with both arms as an airplane marshaller might guide a reluctant aged 737. If you don't, the fluid will collect in your lungs again, and we'll be heading back down to the hospital. She pauses, only for a moment, before deciding to continue. If you go back again, you probably won't come out, and me and Charlie can't keep waking up at two in the morning to help you. We have work to take care of, and Joseph. Her face wants to say more, as does the way her intonation trails in her throat, but she stops herself. Sitting briefly on the sofa, hands half-supporting his hunched frame on bruised knuckles, he chews on his thoughts with his gummy jaw. I sit where I want to sit, he finally spits in a sharp, gruff tone. I've sat where I wanted to sit for almost 90 years already. I'm not going to change where I sit for you or any doctor. To hell with him, the mother that bore him, the midwife that delivered him, and the saint that cursed him. His body remains quite motionless, poised as it is on his feeble knuckle support, but his head bobs about wildly on the spindly tendons of his stretched neck, prodding, poking, and swaying, chin jabbing to punctuate his point. Popping his elbows, he lets his body gently fall across the couch. Laying down, he tucks his feet up at one end while he nudges his head into the coarse towel that lays draped over the thinly padded armrest and closes his eyes. 
He feels so very tired. All he wants to do is sleep. Why does Natalie always make him get so angry with her? All he wants to do is sleep. Didn't she know he was tired of it all? He just needs to sleep? Just one long, deep sleep. Thank you for listening to today's story. Please join us next week for Chapter 7, Rukumuta. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can reach me by email at jeff at That's J-E-F-F at P-A-C-I-T-T-O dot com. On Twitter at jpasitoreads or visit our website at pasito.com. See you soon. <laughs>